Job chapter 4, we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 21 in a message that I'm entitling, Bad Counsel. Chapter 4, verse 1, it says, Then Eliphaz the Temanite answered and said, If one attempts a word with you, will you become weary? But who can withhold himself from speaking? Surely you have instructed many and you have strengthened weak hands. Your words have upheld him who is stumbling. And you have strengthened the feeble knees. But now it comes upon you and you are weary. It touches you and you are troubled. Is not your reverence, your confidence, and the integrity of your ways, your hope? Remember now. Whoever perished being innocent. Or where were the upright ever cut off? Even as I have seen those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. By the blast of God they perish and by the breath of his anger they're consumed. The roaring of the lion, the voice of the fierce lion, and the teeth of the young lions are broken. The old lion perishes for lack of prey. And the cubs of the lioness are scattered. We're going to pause there in our study. And we'll, we'll do the rest of it in just a moment. As we've looked at the book of Job, we've talked about its theme. And some have suggested that, that the theme is, why does God, why does a loving God permit the righteous or the godly to suffer? How do we explain the world in which we live? How do you explain the fact that the innocent seem to experience difficulty and the guilty sometimes go free? If if that's the theme, if the theme is why does a loving God permit the righteous or godly to suffer, the question is never answered in the book of Job. Others suggest... How do the righteous suffer? And in the end, as we make our way through the book of Job, we're going to come to the end when the Lord quite literally shows up. Now, four men will serve as Job's counselors. Eliphaz the Temanite, and much of his counsel is based on what we might call mystical or subjective experience. Bildad's insights are largely based on proverbs, aphorisms, what you and I would call wisdom literature. Zophar was something like a theological dogmatist. By that I mean he was certain that he knew more about God than anyone else. And all of these are older men. How do we know that? Job chapter 32, verse 6. If you just flip a few pages ahead to chapter 32, verse 6, it says, um, So Elihu, the son of Barakel, the Buzzite, answered and said, I am young in years, and you're old. What he's talking about isn't just simply about Job. He's talking about all of the older men who go before him. Older than Job. That's what we learn from chapter 15, verse 10. So Eliphaz, we might say, is the voice of experience. Bildad is like the voice of tradition. 
Zophar is the voice of personal assumptions. And again, we learn about that in chapter 11, verses 13 through 15. So before we dive into these conversations, I need to tell you at least a little bit about these men. What do all of these men have in common? Well, again, here's part of our understanding. All of them suggest that Job is a hypocrite. That there's hidden sin in his life. That the suffering or the chastening is somehow linked to some discrepancy in his life. Some perversion, some wickedness, some hidden unconfessed sin. These men insisted that God always blessed the righteous And he always judged the wicked. The problem with that assumption? It's not true. And guess what? If you assume something to be true when in fact it's not true, then then you're going to come to some wrong conclusions. Finally, a younger man is going to appear on the scene. His name is Elihu. Elihu will suggest that suffering isn't so much punishment as it is chastening or disciplining, and that, that in the end Job should submit to God and trust God. Now, I'm going to suggest to you, is suffering sometimes chastening? Well, maybe sometimes it is. By the way, if you find yourself in difficulty, if you find yourself in a, in a place of discipline, and is, it, is it a good idea to submit to God and trust God? The, the answer is yes. That's good advice. And although it is good advice, sometimes good advice comes from people who have an attitude that their attitude isn't always consistent with the advice. And so in many ways, Elihu seems like an unwelcome counselor and an unwelcome judge. And when the Lord finally does appear, he makes no reference to the speech of Elihu, but he will make references to these other men. One thing the book of Job doesn't provide is a one-size answer to fit the problem of suffering. So as we look in the book of Job and as we read the book of Job and as we ask the question about suffering, is it going to provide for us a do-all, be-all, end-all answer? The problem of suffering is deep and complex. Again, Warren Wiersbe writes, quote, Jesus never sinned. Yet he suffered more than any other person. Neither Job nor his friends knew about the confession in heaven that God was using Job as exhibit A before Satan and the angels to prove that people will trust God even though they don't always understand what God is doing. The friends called Job. A hypocrite in chapter 8, verse 13. A hypocrite in chapter 15, verse 34. A hypocrite in chapter 20, verse 5. A a hypocrite in chapter 34, verse 30. God calls him a perfect and an upright man in chapter 1, verse 8. In chapter 2, verse 3. But again, now all of a sudden the reader is drawn in to this story and to this circumstance. And you're actually invited to believe something. 
to believe whether or not God's word is true. And this is going to become an important principle for each and every one of you. Because in your life, I guarantee you, there will be people who will offer you advice. Some of it will be welcome. Some of it will be unwelcome. In chapter 2, verse 3, God makes it clear that he had no cause for afflicting Job. That Job wasn't a hypocrite. That he wasn't a sinner in the sense of that there was nothing in his life and in his heart and then in his circumstances that would create or generate this kind of discipline or chastening. So this is why God rejected the speech of Elihu in chapter 38 verses 1 and 2 and the speeches of the three men in chapter 42 verse 7. So... Let me help you as we kind of rein this in now. Job's friends will bring eight messages. Three of those messages are going to come from Eliphaz in chapter 4 and 5. And then we're going to meet him again in chapter 15. And then again in chapter 22. Three messages will come from Bildad in chapter 8 and chapter 18 and chapter 25. And two messages will come from Zophar in Job chapter 11 and chapter 20. And then all of a sudden on the scene, the young whippersnacker, snacker, the young whippersnapper, I guess I keep seeing the the harvest candy out there and I keep thinking I want to sneak a Snickers bar. So my brain is betraying my mouth. The young Elihu will go on and on and on and on for six chapters. And when we get to the sixth chapter, even I will be disgusted in chapters 32 through 37. Now I want you to think about this. Job is the longest Bible conference in history. Never have so many preached to so few with so little enjoyment. Now, not all advice is good advice. I think you know that. Especially those of you who are in the counseling business. As a matter of fact, that's your job. Your job is to give people advice. Now, I suspect that those in the counseling business like to think that they're giving good advice. And that they're not giving bad advice. And let's, again, just for a moment, ask and answer a question. Do you think Job's friends think that they're giving good advice? I think that they do. I, I think if, you were to, if we were to invite them up and we'd say, hey, do you think that you're going to offer your friend good advice or bad advice? They would all say good advice. And if we were to even to ask them the question, what is the purpose of what you're doing. We have every reason to believe that they think that they're helping their hurting friend. But in a sense, they're going to lose sight of the original purpose. And it's really important that you remember the original purpose. Go back to chapter 2, verse 11. In chapter 2, verse 11, it says, Now when Job's 
Three friends heard of all this adversity that had come upon him. Each one came from his own place. Eliphaz the Timonite, Bildad the Shuhite, so far the Namathite, for they had made an appointment together to come. Look at what, what, they, what they're supposed to do. And mourn with him. And to, read it for yourself, comfort him. What do they all have in common? They all start with a good motive. What do they have in common? They all start with a false premise. And I want you to think about this for a moment. They believe that the righteous are always rewarded. They believe that the unrighteous are always punished. But here's the question, is that always true? The answer is no, that isn't always true. They all believe that Job's suffering must somehow, somehow be linked to willful sin and and a necessary repentance. And they don't believe God's word concerning Job, that he is blameless and upright. So what else do they have in common? They say some things that are good and true, each and every one of them. And they say some things that aren't good. And that are even foolish. But they all prove not helpful to Job. That's what all of them have in common as well. Why? Because their view is too narrow. Job will actually tell us a little bit later in chapter 6 verse 21. Now you too have proved to be of no help. You see something dreadful and are afraid. That is afraid that they themselves are going to fall into the victim of the same suffering as Job. Because if they're going to be consistent with their theology. That the righteous are always rewarded and the unrighteous are always punished. And they examine their own heart and their own circumstance and their own life. Then they know that something bad is probably going to happen to them as well. Dorothy Sayers said, there's nothing you can't prove if your outlook is sufficiently limited. I had a friend who'd say that he had a a friend who was so narrow minded that he could see through a keyhole with both eyes. That's fairly narrow minded. And now we dive. Verse 1. Then Eliphaz the Temanite answered. Now Eliphaz means Eliphaz. It means God is strength. In some ancient um, quarters they suggested it, it means that God is like fine gold. Timon, he's Eliphaz the Temanite. This is a place that was noted for its wisdom. Some people believe that it was the ancient kingdom of Nabatea, which was east of the Jordan, which was part of the rock city of Petra, and it was noted worldwide for really, really smart people, wise people. Now remember, Job is written thousand years before Socrates and Plato and Aristotle. And in verse 2 it says, if one attempts a word with you, Will you become weary? But who can withhold himself from speaking? Now again, think about what's happening. These three men, along with Job, have been sitting on an ash heap for seven days. Job has spoken in chapter 3. Now in chapter 4, Eliphaz is in in effect saying, Look, 
If I decided to say something, would you be bummed out? Eliphaz has been spending seven days soaking it all in. The sorrow, the pain, the hurt, the difficulty. Job's suffering, he's witnessing it. The anguish, the pain. And again, it would appear that Eliphaz has formed some strong opinions about Job's circumstances. And by the way, isn't this true? That if you're around hurting people for a very long time, you begin to to form opinions about them. You begin to do a little bit of an assessment. You begin to see that some stuff are going on and you begin to form some opinions about what's going on. And that's exactly what's happening to Eliphaz. It was Philip Dormer, you know him better as Lord Chesterfield, said, advice is seldom welcome. And those who want it the most always like it the least. This is Eliphaz's way of saying, can can we talk? Would you like a little advice? And then look what it says in verse 3. Surely you have instructed many and you have strengthened weak hands. Now, again, look at Eliphaz's approach to counseling. He knows what you all learned from Mary Poppins in Disneyland. A spoonful of sugar helps the medicine go down. You know the song. Spoonful of sugar helps the medicine go down. So Eliphaz decides, I'm going to give you a little bit of a medicine. He wisely begins by commending Job. And he's going to praise Job for four specific virtues. And two of the virtues are here in verse 3. Two of the virtues are in verse 4. Job has served as a crisis counselor in times past. He has sat down and instructed others, teaching them about God and the truth about God and how to live a righteous life and how to live it in a righteous way. And Job has strengthened the weak. And what that means is that when Job saw someone in trouble, he stepped in to help. So here was a a man who served in times past. He instructed others. He strengthened the weak. In verse 4, your words have upheld him who was stumbling. The, the, the way that I would, would say that is he was a stretcher bearer. And a stretcher bearer is when someone, when you see someone fall, when you see someone fall, you're willing to pick them up regardless of their failure, regardless of their sin. He's one of those guys that when he sees you stumble and he sees you fall and he sees you in difficulty, he will reach down to help lift you up. He has a ministry of elevation and edification and encouragement. And Job number four has a ministry of providing stability to those who are unstable and struggling, perhaps in their commitment to God or their family or their community. And so Job's ministry was one of support and encouragement. And so Eliphaz says, this is who you are. And this is what you used to do. And now you're in trouble. Someone once said, no gift is more precious than good advice. And there is a time when people need a word of encouragement. They need a word of hope. The book of Proverbs says, the way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but, wise, but a wise man listens to counsel in Proverbs 12, 15. 
Pleasant words are like a honeycomb, sweet to the soul, healing to the bones, it says in Proverbs 16, 24. You know this one, Proverbs 25, 11, like apples of gold in settings of silver is a word spoken in the right circumstance. Another way of saying it, like apples of gold in setting of silver is, is the right word at the right time. The right word at the right time can be impressive. Now, I'm going to tell you something that you already know, but I just want to remind you at this point how important the principle is. Can words help? The answer is yes. Can words harm? The answer is yes. Hold that thought. Verse 4. Your words have upheld him who is stumbling. And you have strengthened the feeble needs. The original language reads, Your words have literally kept men on their feet. Isn't that a, a wonderful testimony? Your words have kept men on their feet. The picture is a person who has stumbled and a person who has fallen and a person who wonders whether or not they're going to be able to take one more step in the right direction. So again, your words can nourish those who are weak and can sustain those who are defeated, but they can also wound and hurt and heap burdens on those who already have what seem like an impossible burden to bear. Here's the point that I want to point out just very quickly as we move on. We have to be careful what we say and how we say it. I can't stress this enough. It's always good advice. If you have absolutely no idea what to say, then don't say anything. It's okay. It's okay. If you have to choose between something evil and something good, choose good. If you have to choose between something shameful and edifying, choose edifying. And the chances are you're going to be fine. Now, having said that, he says, and you have strengthened the feeble knees. Do you remember in the New Testament the scoffers saying to Jesus, He saved others, but himself he cannot save. This is going to be one of the criticisms that Job receives. Clearly, Job was in a financial position to help people in times past, to offer support and and assistance, yet the virtues that are listed are personal virtues. It isn't he bailed everybody out who was in a financial strait. But all of the virtues are linked to his character. We have every reason to believe that Job was sensitive and supportive and compassionate and generous. And that he took care of widows and orphans and the poor and the strangers. We're going to learn about that in chapter 29. Blaise Pascal said, we are better persuaded by the reasons we discover ourselves than them by those that are given by others. It was his way of saying that the greatest lessons that we, we can possibly learn are usually not imparted to us by others, but it's the deep conviction 
position we come to as we face life's difficulties. And so here's the accusation. The counselor's accusation in verse 5. But now it comes upon you and you're weary. It touches you and you're troubled. In verse 5, it's, it's his way of saying, having said all of these commendable things, now you're the one who's experiencing the calamity. And if you've ever been in a position of support and encouragement, if you've ever been the person who has shown up when her, her, the husband has left the wife, or the person has been betrayed, or the child is dead, if you've ever walked into a room where there's sudden infant death syndrome, and you're the one who has to talk with the mother and the father who have, have lost their child, you're, you're the person who provides comfort and hope and encouragement and tears. You're the person who sits down with people and prays with people and encourages people. It's something entirely different when all of a sudden now you're the person who's in trouble. So Eliphaz points out what he perceives to be Job's shortcomings and his weaknesses. And this is a problem. Because Eliphaz is going to assume to know more than he really knows. Eliphaz suggests that Job has fixated on his suffering. Now remember... If you haven't read chapter 1 or chapter 2 or chapter 3, you may not understand what's happening at this particular point. But remember, Job has given a a moving and a stirring speech in chapter 3. Remember what he said, I wish I was never born. Or, if I had been born, I wish that I had died when I was born. And so Eliphaz is basically saying that I think you've taken things, Job, a little over the top. Now, what are we as readers to think? Again, because you're familiar with chapter 1 and your chapter 2 and chapter 3. If you're sensitive and compassionate, is it easy to see how Job was so troubled? The answer is yes. Are there times when people are so focused on their pain and so focused on their suffering and so focused on their problem that you do need some help getting them out of the pain and out of the problem and out of the suffering because they're in this downward spiral and somehow you've got to make the spiral cease for a moment if you're going to, 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 to stop this downward spiral? I think that the answer is yes. But is Eliphaz more concerned about offering advice than offering comfort? And this becomes a key concept for each and every one of you. To ask and answer the question, am I more interested in giving advice or am I more interested in giving comfort? And by the way, is it always wrong to give advice? No. Is it always right to give comfort? I think that there might be times... That comfort isn't the right answer to whatever the issue is. But in this particular instance, Job is looking for comfort. He is not looking for advice. And in verse 6 he says, Is not your reverence, your confidence, and the integrity of your ways your hope? Another way of, of translating that would be, Shouldn't your devout life and love of God give you more confidence? Now remember, it's, it's, it's a chide in a way. 
It would be like if someone, if you were in a deep difficulty, if you were in a painful circumstance, the loss of a child or the loss of a spouse or some deep tragic circumstance and somebody came up to you and said, hey, don't you go to church? Don't you believe the Bible? Hey, I thought you were a Christian and and you do Christian things at this particular moment. Eliphaz is in effect saying, if you are really godly, then you don't have anything to worry about. Now remember, though, even this comes from his wrong view. That God always blesses the righteous. And he always judges the wicked. And of course this isn't true. And the basic premise of all three friends is, do what's right and everything's going to go well. And if you do what's wrong, well, God's going to send judgment. But is that really true? If you do everything right, is it possible that difficulties will come? According to Job, the answer is yes. If you do what is exactly right, is it possible that something horrible could happen? Yes. And even if you do what's wrong, is it possible that for whatever reason that we don't always know, God delays or or, or postpones judgment? Haven't you ever been in a situation where you thought, oh God, you're going to get me for this one? And for reasons that you don't always know, the Lord goes... I'm going to give you space. I'm going to give you space to repent. To turn from that sin and, and, and to embrace an opportunity to turn from that wicked whatever it is that you're doing. And embrace him in, in his love. So again, most people believe that God will eventually or ultimately bless the righteous. And eventually and ultimately judge the wicked. But it is not the ultimate but the immediate That Job's friends are concerned about. Now this becomes important to you too. It's not the ultimate. But the immediate that Job's friends are are concerned about. Why is this important to you? Because your concern might be for the immediate. But whatever the immediate issue is. You should have a long range view. Of the ultimate outcome. And that is. What does God think about this in the long run? What does the, the big picture look like? So Eliphaz is basically saying that Job's problem is in part a lack of faith. And I think that this wicked position is reflected in some circles of Christianity. Most notably in what's been called the health and wealth gospel. Where the the people will will think, well, you know what? You know why there's pain and problems and tragedy in your life? It's because you've made a negative confession. Or because you've done something wrong. Think about what's happening. Eliphaz accuses Job of not taking his own advice. Job has encouraged and uplifted others he, who were suffering and now he's suffering. Job needs the support of his friends, but now Eliphaz offers him criticism, taunts, and accusations of not being spiritual. Helpful or not helpful? Not helpful. And then he adds, remember now, whoever perished being innocent, or were the upright ever cut off? In other words, Eliphaz is holding fast his doctrine. Don't you understand, Job? The innocent do not suffer. You are suffering. Therefore, you're not innocent. That's what he's saying. Eliphaz sees God as a great lawgiver. Now, by the way, Is God a great lawgiver? Yes. 
But see, here's what he's doing. He's holding on to the commitment, whoever perished being innocent. Let's answer the question. Whoever perished being innocent, what comes to your mind? Who was the most innocent person who ever lived? By the way, did he suffer? Was he arrested and killed and crucified? Did he deserve it? So when Eliphaz says, who or, or where were the upright ever cut off? You as a New Testament reader can go, why the whole New Testament with Jesus? Is there an innocent person who suffered? Yes, Jesus did. And by the way, we could say the same thing about the martyrs. There are people who suffered and they didn't do anything wrong. And some of us might think that we want to give them an excuse. Well, Eliphaz Where is your theology of mercy? And where is your theology of compassion? And where is your theology of patience? And where is your theology of grace? By the way, from the moment that God shows up in the circumstances of sinful human beings, is he a God of grace? Is he a God of mercy? Is he a God of love? Is he dealing with Adam and Eve according to their sin? Is he rewarding them according to their iniquity? Is he giving people chances, chances, grace, mercy, opportunity? Verse 8, even as I have seen, those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. This is good theology. What a person sows, they also reap. This is true. Even as I have seen. Don't overlook that. Eliphaz bases his comments on two things that we're going to discover. One is personal observation. I have seen, verse 3. I have seen, verse 27. And then a mystical, frightening, subjective encounter with what seems like a spirit being or, or a dream. When we look ahead to verse 12... It says, now a word was secretly brought to me and my ear received a whisper of it in disquieting thoughts from the visions of the night. When deep sleep falls on men, fear came upon me and trembling, which made all my bones shake. Then a spirit passed before my face. (laughs) The head on my body stood up. It stood still. But I couldn't discern its appearance. A form went before my eyes. There was silence. Then I heard a voice say, Can a mortal be more righteous than God? Bible teachers are split whether this is where it ends because there's no such things as parentheses in the Hebrew language. So I'm not sure if the Spirit is still speaking. I'm going to suggest to you that maybe he is. Can a man be more pure than his maker? If he puts no trust in his servants? If he charges his angels with error? 
How much more those who dwell in houses of clay, whose foundation is in the dust, who are crushed before a moth. They are broken in pieces from morning till evening. They perish forever with no one regarding. Does not their own excellence go away? They die. Even without wisdom. And you go, thanks Eliphaz. Now, Eliphaz, his theology is based on what he sees and observes and this supernatural encounter with a spirit based on a dream. He says in verse 9, By the blast of God, they perish, and by the breath of his anger, they are consumed. In other words, it's his way of saying, hey, you know what? God has a very short fuse, and when you do something wrong, it's like when you were a kid growing up. I knew God was a great big man up in the sky with a huge club, and he hits me over the head each and every time that I do something bad. The roaring of the lion, the voice of the fierce lion, and the teeth of the young lions are broken. The old lion perishes for lack of prey, and the cubs of the lioness are scattered. And you're thinking, what in the world does that mean? Well, let me help you. It's an idiomatic expression, an aphorism or a proverb from the Middle East. The lion, you all know what a lion is. It's a strong creature that scares everybody in the forest. If you've ever watched the movie, um, there's this, this, this terrifying movie, um, Ghosts in the Darkness. It's about lions in Africa, and they come up and they eat people, and you can hear them roar. Some of you saw the MGM lion where he just does this roar. And by the way, in real life, after they filmed the MGM lion roaring, the next day he ate his trainer. Yeah, re- for reals. So, here's the idea. The lion is a picture of strength. The wicked sometimes appear strong and even noble, but they cannot ultimately prosper. And so when he says the voice of the fierce lion and the teeth of the young lions are broken, the old lion perishes for lack of prey, and the cubs of the lioness are scattered, Eliphaz is suggesting that Job might be that lion, that he was noble and proud, and that somehow he's become something different, and that he's been found out. And so now we look at the counselor's arguments and he, and he voices them. Now a word was secretly brought to me and my ear received a whisper of it in disquieting thoughts from the visions of the night when deep sleep falls on men. Here's what Eliphaz is doing. He's claiming secret knowledge. He's basically saying... Job, I think I know the answer to your problems. I think I understand the issues that you're facing because guess what? The Lord has shown me in a dream and a vision about your circumstance. That's what he's saying. And by the way, when you are in trouble and you want information and you ask the question, why? Why is this happening? Why is this happening to me? It doesn't 
seem all that far-fetched that you're going to want to look to an answer from a supernatural source. This is exactly what happens to Saul when he's cut off from God and he goes and he visits the witch at Endor because he's not hearing from God, but he still wants supernatural instructions on what's going on in his life. And by the way, have you ever known anyone who has lost a parent or lost a child or lost a loved one who said, I think I'm going to go visit a medium. I'm going to go visit a psychic. I'm going to have them read my palm. I'm going to have them read my leaves or I'm going to have them read whatever it is that they read because they're so hurt and they're so empty and they desperately want to hear from the person that they've lost. And so Eliphaz claims that he has a dream. He says that fear came upon me and trembling which made all my bones shake. In in other words, here's what he's saying. This is a real experience. It really happened to me. Then a spirit passed before my face. The hair on my body stood up. You know that saying. It's like when you walk into a cold circumstance or a creepy circumstance. Has, has the hair on the back of your neck ever stood up because you go, ooh, this is creepy. That's what he's saying. I was creeped out, Job. I was creeped out. It stood still. What was it? I couldn't discern its appearance. A form was before my eyes. I listened carefully. I listened carefully. There was silence. I was listening. I was listening. Then, then I heard a voice saying, Can a mortal be more righteous than God? Can a man be more pure than his maker? So what's the spirit saying? You can read it for yourself. Can a mortal be more righteous than God? The obvious answer is no. Can a man be more pure than his maker? Will a human being ever be as pure as God? The answer is no. But is this helpful? And what does it mean? It's like when you're a kid and you're watching a cartoon. The spirits are speaking. What are they saying? I don't know. Come on, what are you saying? The meaning seems to be that no man has a right to reply against God. The meaning seems to be you have no right to question God. If a person suffers, it's not God's fault. It's your fault. And see, this is where the problem comes in. This is where the problem comes in. What is the source of the supernatural message? And this is what you should always ask whenever you're confronted with a supernatural uh, message. What is the source? And by the way, is this source from God or is this a lying spirit? Well, let's think about that for just a moment. Eliphaz is there. He seems to be a nice enough guy. He's been standing in the trash heap with you for seven days. He seems to love the God of the Bible. He talks about this spooky situation. Says that he has a message from a spirit being just for you. Do you believe it? The Bible says in 1 John chapter 4 verse 1, Test the spirits to see whether or not they are from God. 
Again, Wiersbe makes this comment. He says, it doesn't fit the pattern for revealing truth. He, he writes, there's a lack of authority. The Spirit doesn't say, thus says the Lord, or the word of the Lord. You, throughout the Bible, when the Lord really does show up, and there is a word, a supernatural word from God, usually it will be prefaced with the statement, thus says the Lord, or this is what God says. I've devoted my life to the Bible. In my experiences with the word of God, it's never been my experience that God sneaks up on people and goes, boo! (laughs) It's just not the way God works. God isn't the kind of God who just goes, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to make your bones shake. I'm going to make your teeth shatter. I'm going to make your hair stand on end. That's typically not the way it works because the Bible says that the spirit of God is gentle. Did Eliphaz have a dream and then meditate on that dream? And did that dream become a vision? Yes. Is God the source? I'm going to suggest to you that God wasn't the source. I'm going to suggest to you at best this is Eliphaz's wishful thinking and an altered state of consciousness from being on a trash heap for seven days. (laughs) Eliphaz then says in verse 18, if he puts no trust in his servants... If he charges his angels with error, Eliphaz is in effect saying, God is so great and God is so powerful that he doesn't even have to rely or trust his own servants. That means human beings are flawed. Even the angels compared to God are flawed. The implication being that if angels are flawed, human beings are even more flawed. In verse 19, how much more than those who dwell in houses of clay? That means human beings whose foundation is the dust who are crushed before a moth. Now again, Think about what he's saying. Are human beings less than God? Yes. Are we clay? Yes. Are we temporal? Yes. Eliphaz has part of the story right. But he doesn't have the whole story right. Because you are more than dust. You are more than clay. The Bible says that you're created in the image of God. The Bible says that God has placed eternity inside of your heart. You see, you have been created in the image and the likeness of God. You have been created with eternity in your heart. You have been created so that you could love and know and have friendship and relationship with God. A moth's life is like having no life. It's transient and temporal. But the Bible says that you really are eternal. That you'll live forever somewhere. And so yes, you are clay, but you are more than clay. Because God made you. He created you. He says they are broken in pieces from morning till evening. They perish forever with no one regarding. And that is not true. By the way, when you die, is that it? You stop breathing and they put you in the dirt and they throw dirt on top of you. Is that the end? 
Jesus says, it's not the end. Jesus told the religious leaders of his day, you say that, you're, that you follow the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Is God a God of the living or is God a God of the, of the dead? And then Jesus says the most remarkable thing. He says, I'm the resurrection and the life. And he that believes in me, even if he were dead, yet shall he live. Eliphaz, in effect, is saying that human beings can't be trusted. They are frail. They are temporal. They are fragile. And they die in ignorance. And it is true, it is true, it is true that most people cannot be trusted. It is true that they are frail. It is true that they're temporal. It's true that they're fragile. And it's even true that most people die in ignorance. They're ignorant of who the real God of the Bible is. They're ignorant of what it means to have a Savior. They're ignorant that they have an eternal soul that will live forever somewhere. So, where is the theology of grace? Where is the message of mercy? Where is the message of justice? Just quickly, before we close... I want to ask you a question. I don't expect you to have the answer right at this very moment, but I do expect you to think about it just for a moment, ponder it, and reflect on it. When are we most likely, when are you most likely to give bad advice? You see... Some of you have been the recipient of bad advice. People have come to you and said, you know what I think you should do? And maybe you yourself have come up to somebody and you've said to them, you know what I think you should do? When are you most likely to give bad advice? I want you to think about it. And then I want to make some suggestions to you for your answer. You're most likely to give bad advice when you base your advice on your subjective experiences, on your mystical musings, on your personal observations instead of God's word. Doesn't that make sense to you? That almost invariably you're way more likely to give bad advice when you give advice based on your subjective feelings, your personal opinions... And you're less likely to give bad advice when you embrace the principles of God's word. I'm going to suggest to you that you're more likely to give bad advice when you ignore the Bible or neglect the Bible or misunderstand the word of God. And the other time when you are most likely to give it bad advice, when your assumptions lead you astray. When your assumptions lead you astray. Let's just be honest. Are we going to always know the truth about every situation? No. Are we going to sometimes know the truth about a given situation? Yes. You're way more likely to give good advice if your assumptions 
are founded instead of unfounded. Eliphaz doesn't respond to Job's suffering with comfort or compassion. He preaches. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm a preacher. I preach. It's what I do. I think that preaching is the right thing to do sometimes. Especially when I'm giving you a biblical principle and then I'm urging you to honor that principle. Preaching isn't always bad and it it isn't always wrong. But Eliphaz assumes that Job has sinned and that God sent trouble to Job as a direct punishment for sin. The problem? His assumption isn't true. Roy Zuck says, such a theory doesn't fit all the facts. Many times the innocent do suffer, and often the wicked seemingly have no problem. That was Job's point throughout the book. Eliphaz's view of an airtight doctrine of retribution doesn't really jive with reality, unquote. So we have to be careful about what we assume about other people's painful situations. And then we need to encourage people instead of blame them. You know, much of human suffering can be linked to the fact that we live in a fallen world. Does that mean that all suffering is linked to the fact that we live in a fallen world? In part. Does that mean that no one is ever personally responsible for the choices that they've made? No, that isn't true either. People are responsible for the choices that they make. Are there times that we reap what we sow? Yes. But even when we're reaping the consequences of bad choices or sinful choices, let me ask you a question. Do you think that's the time to tell people the truth in love? With grace and compassion and mercy? Which do you think is more powerful? Words of grace and mercy and forgiveness and hope or words of blame and shame? It's pretty simple, isn't it? Let me ask you yet another question. Do you know someone right at this very moment who's dealing with with a Job-sized problem. I'm hoping, I'm hoping, I'm hoping that God is going to use you to love them and minister to them and comfort them. By the way, ask yourself this question. How can I show friendship and support? You know, throughout this book, there's going to be three great big things that we're going to be coming back to over and over again. Integrity at odds with adversity. Friendship that intensifies loneliness. Does that shock you? Friendship that intensifies loneliness. Have you ever had a so-called friend who was there to help you and you never felt more alone in your whole life than when he or she showed up? Well, that's... Friendship isn't supposed to intensify loneliness. 
But that's what we're going to see as Job hears speech after speech after speech. Because one of the things that he's going to have to ask and answer is his own theology. You see, he has believed for a very long time that the wicked suffer punishment and the righteous experience joy. But now his own experience seems in direct contradiction to his own theological position. And now he's going to have to reassess everything. Remember what I've already told you? This book, this book, this book is the oldest book in the Bible. But have you ever heard anything that was so powerful for right now, for the here and the now, in the real world in which people live? This is why it's going to astonish you. Here's what I want to encourage you to do. Read ahead. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we do ask and pray, Lord, that we would be men and women who are filled with grace and compassion and mercy. Lord, we pray that as we evaluate people's circumstances and situations, that we would be quick, quick, quick to give love and compassion and slow, slow, slow to draw conclusions about things without evidence. Lord, we pray that we would be able to tell the difference between advice and comfort. And that when comfort is needed, that it would be comfort that would be given. And Lord, we, we pray that we would always remember that advice falls into two categories. Good advice <laughs> and, well, not so good advice. And so again, Lord, we pray that, that our encouragement and instruction would be based on the word of God and the principles of God, and the grace of God, and the mercy of God, and the forgiveness of God. And again, Lord, we pray that we would be men and women who are friends, particularly when people need help. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.